Welcome to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. Q is about conversation. If we're really concerned about ending poverty, we've got to be more concerned about creating justice. Our cultural products as Christians need to both defy and resonate with the culture. And God's doing amazing things. His church is expanding. His church is growing. It's not what's the purpose of my life. It's what is the purpose that's been assigned. Stay curious. Think well. Advance good. This is Q. We really do have dominion over the planet, and the fall didn't change that in a way. It warped it and distorted it. So the consequences that we see now, tens of thousands of years later, in the way we run our economy, the fact that we should have a negative impact on creation really fits into our notion of what sin is. Welcome to this week's Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. Hi, I'm Paul Perot from Faith Radio. Question, what does it mean to care for creation? It's not just a matter of the issue of climate change. There are deep theological issues that Christians should consider as we think about creation care, especially as it impacts other people. Now, Gabe, today we're featuring a recent conversation you had with a longtime friend of yours named Rusty Pritchard. Before we get to your conversation, tell us a bit more about him. He serves as Vice President of Advocacy and Influence at Tear Fund USA, a Christian organization working in global poverty. But more than that, Rusty's an old friend of mine. He goes back to the first days when we were creating the vision for the Q Conference, the first one we did in Atlanta. I'm going to get into that with him. We're going to talk about what we were trying to do there when we were trying to help people understand environmental stewardship at a time when the environment discussion was not something that was part of normal dialogue. It really wasn't. The church wasn't talking about it. People weren't really aware of terms like climate change. In fact, global warming would have been the term back then people were using. But we started to bring that conversation to the fore. And what I've always loved about Rusty is just this balanced approach. Um, There's a lot of debate about different elements of climate change and how do you end it and what are the right policies. So I want to ask him about some of those. We'll talk about the Green New Deal. We'll talk a little bit about climate skepticism. We'll talk about Al Gore. I mean, we're going to get into everything. I think you're going to love it. And let's listen in now to my conversation with Rusty. Rusty, it is so great to have you on the Cube podcast. I'm really glad to join you today, Gabe. Listen, you've been such a good friend to me. I mean, I I go back. You and I, 2006, we first met uh, when we were both in Atlanta. You were at Emory. You were one of the first Christians I knew who could explain to me environmental issues, stewardship, why this matters, why Christians ought to care the most about our creation and taking good care of it. And it's funny to even think back that that wasn't a normal conversation 15 years ago in in the widest circles, but today it is. But you've been thinking about it for a long time. How How did you first get into this conversation? Yeah, it's really interesting because I'm not a natural environmentalist. In fact, I think you remember that I've corrected you a few times when you've called me an environmentalist. I mean, that seems like it's it's a kind of movement with a political ideology. And I would like to say that just by reading scripture and movement of the Holy Spirit, I came to a great appreciation for creation. But really, I came at it through my discipline, which is economics. It's a study of how people make a living on earth. And there's so much about economics that's about doing things in a smart way rather than a dumb way, making sure that you account for the the total impacts of what you're doing, that you don't do things that have side effects on people that aren't part of what your enterprise is without actually paying for the, the side impacts that you've caused. Like there's so much in economic theory that leads you to say, 
environment is an area where there are problems and economics can help address them. And it was only after beginning to ask those questions that I kind of went back and reread scripture all the way through and looked at the ways in which the Bible talks about the environment, talks about creation, and came to a much deeper understanding then of how central it is to discipleship. It's not just a matter of smart business practices. Yeah, and it's been such a big part of your calling and assignment. I mean, you've helped so many leaders better understand how to think about this well, how to think about it biblically with a great theological foundation. And you were doing that for us. I mean, that was 2007. I remember the first queue we did in Atlanta at the Tabernacle. You were helping us work through how to make it carbon neutral. How could we just make sure the way that we actually did that event? And at the time, again, we were having to explain to people what that would mean, but we weren't going to do water bottles, right? We we were going to give people glasses and have them drink water a different way than what was just the norm. And we weren't going to print things that weren't recyclable. And there was, there was just a lot of intention around it. And I just think fast forward now, so many years, you've helped so many people really make this part of their normal uh, way of thinking. I want you to describe, you talked at Q two years ago, our Q event on mapping environmental injustice. And you were showing us these visuals of a city. And I think it was Atlanta. It was because Atlanta. That's, that's where you're at. And, and you were helping people see visually how environmental injustice happens. And I think for some people, they hear that term and they think, wait, is that real? There's a whole skepticism movement, obviously, around climate change that's very political and very much oriented towards what policies really work, what won't work. Is this man-made? How much of it's really man-made? How much of it's just, you know, the cycle of the world? And, and those whole conversations that in some circles are completely settled, other circles, not so much. And yet, we could all look at a map and we could see that there's injustice that's happening around how the environment is built, how structures are built and the way that we view our cities. And I think what that did is it brought the conversation back to real tangible people and how they're affected and how we think and build starts to affect things. So do your best to describe for us a little bit about how we can map environmental justice in our cities and what that means to you. Yeah, it's really interesting that we have now as a society, come to grips with the idea of pollution. Like that's not a mysterious thing. Even though we might not see pollution, it might not be visible. We understand that there are these local impacts of decisions that we make. Like the example that I used was where to site hazardous waste dump sites. And the examples that we looked at showed that the vast majority of those environmental waste dumping sites that leach uh, into the groundwater toxins, that uh, off-gas chemicals into the atmosphere that affect local neighborhoods, so many of them are located in districts and regions that are predominantly African-American or Asian or Latino. And that was the map that we looked at. It came from uh, Leroy Barber and I, who were doing church together in South Atlanta, sort of traveling through the neighborhood and seeing just how many intensely polluting facilities there were in the mostly African neighborhood, mostly African-American neighborhood where we served. And we decided to get on the EPA database that lets you map where toxic facilities are located. That's gas stations and recycling centers, which sounds like a green, clean thing, but it's not really when it actually finds expression on the landscape. Uh, hazardous waste dump stations, transfer stations for municipal waste. So many things that pollute the atmosphere were located in the neighborhood where we were working. So much so that Leroy jokingly said, you know, there's this movement to not allow these facilities in your backyard, saying not in my backyard. He right. said, everything's in my backyard. Mm. 
but when we started mapping it, and then we looked at with a really neat tool uh, where different uh, races are settled in Atlanta, you could look at different parts of town, you could see the historic uh, redlining that occurred that put African Americans in one part of the town and whites in another part of the town. But then more recently, recent immigrants have settled in particular geographies in Atlanta. And when you overlay those two maps, what you see is that there is a clear racial dimension to the location of those toxic facilities. So everybody, in a sense, benefits from some of those toxic facilities because I can buy products uh, from companies that can send their waste somewhere to be treated or disposed of, and it gets it out of their hair, out of their neighborhood. I benefit from the products, but the harms are heaped up on particular people. And, and what do we do about that? I mean, it, is it one of those things where those particular areas are less expensive to buy real estate in, and therefore it attracts a poor community that can buy into those spaces? Or is it one where cities are mapping and telling these types of businesses that they need to go set up shop in these particular areas because they feel like they'll get the least amount of pushback? Yeah, the, the idea of uh, people being politically disempowered and not being able to push back is probably a real driver of why these industries are concentrated in certain areas. Real estate prices is another reason. Um, but even when you control for those things, you still see a kind of racial disparity in where things are located. And that's obviously not fair, but it's a symbol of broken relationships at a really broad scale that we are we are involved in an industrial production system that ends up producing things that we consider waste or pollution that don't do anybody any good. And we don't know how to capture those and reuse those as part of our industrial system. Now, we've gotten better at this since we started asking companies to take more responsibility for their pollution. There are no longer pipes with open sewage flowing into our waterways as there were in the 1940s and 50s. Our air is so much cleaner, Gabe, than it was in the 1950s and 60s because of the Clean Air Act that was passed in 1970. And what we've seen is that through those prudent measures where people come together in a bipartisan way and decide that we really want to clean up our environment, we make tremendous strides. So if you were to measure in 2020 what the benefit of the Clean Air Act is for the American economy, I think we've avoided something like $3.8 trillion of damages just this year because we passed the Clean Air Act in 1970, revised it. George Bush passed some amendments that made it stronger in 1990. And now it's functioning for the benefit of everybody because we came together to find a solution to this common problem. Uh, you work for an international relief and development organization, and you guys respond to disasters. You, you do so much work that's long-term community development. But you also talk a lot about climate change. And I'd love for you to describe you know, where you see the climate change role in how environmental injustice takes place, or even in the development work that you're doing around the world, how are people being affected by climate change? Yeah, I mean, it's very similar, but in a sense, scaled up from those local pollution problems that we were talking about. You know, we share a common atmosphere with the entire globe and a common climate system. And when it starts to go haywire, it affects the people who are most directly uh, dependent on creation, for example, farmers the most, 
people who live in very marginal situations in very vulnerable landscapes where there's frequent fires and floods and uh, and droughts, those kinds of natural disasters, those kinds of threats become much more common with climate change. And we in the U.S. can buffer ourselves from some of those. Although, you know, we're starting to see and have some solidarity with the rest of the world that the effects that climate change has are really starting to hit us in our country as well. You saw with the fires out west, with back-to-back hurricanes repeatedly here in the east, you know, things are coming home to roost now, and and we actually aren't able to completely buffer ourselves from environmental vicissitudes. Because we work with poor farmers all over the world, we hear stories about people who can't grow the crops that they used to grow, people whose yields have declined, people who are subject to pests that they have never experienced before. And all over the world, folks are attributing that to a changing climate. They say, we don't know when the rain is going to come anymore. We used to be able to predict, get our crops in the ground, know that rain was going to come and water those crops. These are farmers who don't afford, can't afford pumps and irrigation for their fields. So they're really feeling the impact in their pocketbooks and in the ability of their kids to, to flourish, to have adequate nutrition, to attend school with a, um, with, in, in a really good, you know, good shape. And those things are commonplace in the developing world. And people talk quite openly about climate change. And they've asked us, why aren't you talking about it in your country? Tier Fund started in the UK, has spread to many other developed countries like the US. And farmers in Tanzania who are experiencing difficulty growing crops kind of know a little bit about how the climate system works. Uh, and they know that we should be doing our part to mitigate the worst impacts of climate change. Yeah, and that, and that obviously has created the skepticism and the debate around climate change and climate change deniers, right? Is this man-made or not, right? And how much can we really impact it? How much can we control it? You know, when, when there were seasons where there wasn't rain, we used to just call it a drought. We didn't always tack it up to this is climate change or something that we, we can control. It was just like, these are the rhythms of creation. That's right. But when you look at the data, conservatives and likely a lot of Christians become a core part of this group that is skeptical about man-made climate change. And that strikes me as ironic because conservatism is kind of built off the idea of conserving, right? It's a, it's about conservation. Yeah, it's about conservation. That's where that word developed from. And yet there's a skepticism about how much human beings are able to do anything about it. So how do you address that? Because I know you're, you're somebody who studies this deeply, study it theologically. Why do you think it is that conservatives and maybe Christians are skeptical about it? Yeah, I'm glad you used the word skeptical because you did use the word denial. And I don't really talk about climate denialists because I think that's insulting. It feels like you're calling somebody a Holocaust denier or something like that. I think folks are properly skeptical. I used to be a climate skeptic um, back in the uh, in the 80s and 90s when I was in college and grad school. I saw a lot of the basic science about climate change uh, just coming out and becoming mainstream in the scientific community, though not really in, in public debate. And I was skeptical about it because it wasn't my field. I was in ecology and economics. And people in academia are always skeptical about other people's work until they have some cause to really dwell deeply on it. So it wasn't until the late 90s that I really started looking at the evidence around global climate change and understanding what it meant. And it didn't take long before I was convinced that it really was a, a global problem. Now, climatologists knew it was a problem 
back in the 70s and the basic science uh, behind climate change, that is the physics of the atmosphere and how it how carbon dioxide is like a blanket over the surface of the earth. This was known back in the 1800s. So none of this is really new science, but we've only in the last half of the 20th century had the data to be able to really test those hypotheses. But you couldn't really test that hypothesis until the mid 20th century after World War II, when we'd put a lot of investment into meteorological research to do great weather forecasts for fighting World War II. The peacetime dividend was that we could use those data and those meteorological stations and measurements to test these hypotheses about how climate was changing. And the evidence began to marshal that it really was changing, and it was tied to carbon pollution in the environment that comes from industrial burning of fossil fuels. So how would you say the conversation has maybe not gone the way that those who want to help people better understand climate has maybe gone off the rails? I mean, I think about Al Gore, for example, and others who became pretty famous for helping people wake up to the environment, wake up to the problems that could come. But was it too extreme? Did it go too far to basically, you know, predict that all the ice was going to melt, our cities were going to be flooded? But before 2020, I think there was predictions that it was going to happen sooner. Um, does that type of fear-based approach motivate people? Or do you think we just kind of shut down a little bit and they're like, I don't believe that. So I'm not going to act. Oh, I I know that I'm subject to the same sort of uh, fatalism when I... I come across folks who are climate obsessives. That is, that's that's all they talk about. It's just about gloom and doom. It's just about an impending apocalypse. And there's a fair amount of finger pointing that happens in that process, too, that they want to find a guilty party and hang them out to dry. I think that these are problems that God has given us that we can work on together. And it's not that conservatives and progressives should line up on different sides of this debate, because If we're going to solve the problems that look like they're really real from a scientific point of view, like the science is more and more aligned, but division is about what kinds of policies would help us to to deal with these issues. And here's where you get classic divisions between progressives who are pretty happy with big government solutions to big problems and conservatives or libertarians who are more likely to want to see the free market unleashed to do its work and, and unleash corporate ingenuity on solving some of these problems. So I think you'll find in the future that most of the partisan divide, I would say within five to 10 years, is going to be around what the best solutions are for climate change rather than whether it's happening or not, because that's becoming harder, harder little island to to stand on. Well, and the Green New Deal was something that came up in the latest sort of policy prescriptions that really laid out a, a plan that was enormous in terms of one policy prescription of how you would solve some of the climate change, but it, 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 the amount of money that costs, the amount of change that would require to a lot of people, I, I think, made them reject it out of hand. But it's kind of like moving the Overton window, right, where the window now moves to what was possible in a, in a way that beforehand people would never have even imagined retrofitting tens of thousands of buildings and requiring certain things that that would only be necessary if you know if you wanted to travel if you wanted to do certain activities you have to follow these guidelines some of that started to push so far that now people might be imagining something more do you, do you see a positive to sort of an imagination for environmental 
care that makes people get more creative in the short term, even if it doesn't play out the way that maybe that policy prescription lays out? Yeah, I'll betray some of my own political leanings in that I think the creativity is unleashed when you get market incentives lined up in the right way. So people are rewarded for doing things that are smart and that uh, recognize the costs of their activities and endogenize them and bring them into their bookkeeping and their accounting rather than as it is now, we expect to be able to run the economy in a certain way and have the costs of carbon pollution fall on other people and not reimburse them for those costs. So there is a concept of in carbon pollution of, of thinking of the social cost of carbon. There's the cost of, of gasoline for driving in my car, but I don't pay anything for the fact that I get to send my exhaust out into the environment for free and impact lots of people's lives in Atlanta. But I could, through careful scientific analysis, understand a little bit about what those costs are. And if you put those costs into the price of gasoline, I'd think harder about buying a fuel-efficient car, and I might drive less and find some other ways to organize my life, not because some rule or regulation is uh, standing in my way to keep me from doing something creative, but because the price reflects reality. Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting, though, when you get into these policy prescriptions, I don't know if you've read much about Tesla. People describe Tesla as something that would be great for the environment. It's an electric car, but the actual electricity that it takes to run a Tesla produces more pollution in creating the electricity that it needs than if you were having if you had a gasoline driven car. Have you have you heard that? I haven't heard that about Tesla's, but I know that a lot of people think that electric vehicles are zero emissions. They're not emitting anything at the point, but there's a power plant somewhere that's generating the electricity that goes into charging up your electric vehicle. Right. So you have to do something that's like full life cycle, full cost accounting to be able to make judgments about these technologies. And that's that's a matter of prudence. That's back in the realm of economics. That's not in the realm of yeah. things that Christians would be disagreeing about for ideological reasons or for theological reasons. It's just a matter of good bookkeeping. That's where you being a resource economist comes into play. And that's what we were doing back at that first Q event. We were trying to analyze how much carbon would we use to make an event happen and how could we rectify that. I just love, Rusty, your thoughtfulness and how deep it runs. And you're not a headline guy. You're very much about what's true and let's get to what's true. Let's think well about it. Let's be curious. I mean, these are all these aspects of Q that from the earliest days you helped uh, shape in the DNA of what we're trying to accomplish. But I'd love to kind of conclude in this place of just talking biblical vision for caring about our creation and the environment. You've always been able to break it down for me in a, in a way that just steps outside of those two polar places and helps the Christian recognize they have a responsibility with this creation, and it's incumbent upon all of us to participate. Would you describe more of that foundation? Yeah, I mean, it, it goes back to something that I think you were one of the first people I heard talking about on a public stage, this big four-act drama of of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And if we put these environmental problems that are, they're little problems and set it against the backdrop of this big story of what God has done in the world, what people have done, what Jesus have done, and what, what Jesus is going to come back to do, it makes a whole lot more sense. At the beginning, God gave dominion over the planet to people. And that's kind of a crazy concept that 
uh, two people living in a garden somewhere in Mesopotamia um, should somehow receive a mandate that says you are to rule over this world. And yet that's what God said. So we really do have dominion over the planet. And the fall didn't change that in a way. It warped it and distorted it. So the consequences that we see now tens of thousands, millions of years later in the way we run our economy, the fact that we should have a negative impact on creation really fits into our notion of what sin is, of what the fall is. It has consequences. So it shouldn't surprise us. In a sense, climate change as a problem from the way humans behave is the most plausible thing in the world from Christian theology. There's no area of life where our sin doesn't touch it and, and warp and distort, whether that's uh, sexuality or economics or environment. But that's not where God left it. He came to redeem and restore that entire creation. You know, as Colossians says that through Jesus' death on the cross, he is reconciling all things to himself. So in looking to solve these problems, we have the wind at our back. We have the creator of the universe who wants us to live back into that original job. You know, we didn't just get fired from that job. He has redeemed us and restored us to that position as reconcilers. So this is just one of many problems where humans have to get busy as reconcilers and redeemers and folks that are looking to fix what's broken because that's what Jesus wants us to do. That was Gabe's conversation with Rusty Pritchard from Tear Fund USA about creation care. Tear Fund works alongside local churches to help people in their communities overcome poverty and injustice. And when it comes to environmental injustice, Gabe, remind us of a talk Rusty did a few years ago at a Q conference about mapping environmental injustice. Rusty's talk is so good. The one on mapping environmental justice. You can go back and watch that nine minute talk on Q Media. I know some of you already subscribed to Q Media, but if you don't subscribe, it's all mapped out and deployed playlist where we talk about things like the environment, mental health, sexuality, you name it, the issue. We have talks on it that are relevant, that are current, that are by experts like people like Rusty, who can help you better understand our world and how faith applies to it. You can learn more about all that at qideas.org and just click on media and subscribe. It's $7.99 a month and enjoy it and start to utilize this as a place to cultivate conversations in your family, in your team, in those that you love. Well, it's been another great conversation today. Uh, we're appreciative of you being a listener. Give us a review on wherever you listen to podcasts. Give us a review. We love hearing from you. And thank you for being a part of a community that seeks to learn and seeks to understand. Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons is made possible in partnership with Faith Radio and Northwestern Media. Thanks again for listening. Thank you for listening to the Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons podcast. These conversations are available because of listener support. You can make your gift now at MyFaithRadio.com. To avoid missing future editions of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons, subscribe to the podcast today at iTunes or on your podcast player. And thank you for sharing this audio link with a friend and growing the impact of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons.